until we're not wizards. Can I hear it? to another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for September. Lots of things going on, lots of things happening, you know. There's a lot of people like them going about and debating. There's a lot of mass debating going on at the moment over in the House of Commons. Some people are saying they love it, some people are saying to hell with Brexit, but that's, you know, just one of these things that's happening at the moment. And it's a question is, do you want to be a meeple like them, or do you want to be a meeple like us? So, joining me today, (laughs) from meeple like us, he's important, he's studied, he's a doctor. He's a doctor of words. He's a doctor of huge Patreon updates. I give you the man that is Dr. Michael Heron. Yeah! Hello, thank you very much for having me. I I mean, I wish I hadn't said that thing about Brexit. You just made it all political now. (laughs) Where do we we go? Where do we stand? I know, it's like we don't want to give our opinions and say... I always thought um, if I ever wanted to kind of like... finish up the podcast I just post a tweet that was quite controversial (laughs) and then just let you know and then just let everybody else just finish me off but anyway um, it's not as much fun as you might think (laughs) (laughs) I know we can get onto that later on if you want Um, how are you doing first of all you well I'm very well thank you how are you I am about a 9.6 I'll be honest you know it's we're getting into that point of the year where the horrible heat has gone because yeah. I don't like sleeping in the horrible heat and we're getting to the point where I'm looking at my partner they're looking at me and we're saying do we, do we put the heating on <laughs> for the first time do, you, do we just creep at above 21 degrees um, but anyway I suppose I better say do the admin hello to everybody who's out there thank you for listening um, yes thank you for coming along and then and hopefully you'll enjoy the show. The reason that we do this is, uh, quite simply, there's still not enough podcasts out there about tabletop and board gaming. And the second reason that we do this is about, (laughs) embarrassingly enough, for the last couple of years, me and Michael, or Dr. Heron as he's known, have been having on and off conversations about at some point in the future us actually getting together and having a conversation. And the last time we had a conversation about that was over a year ago at Tabletop Scotland and um, where we kind of met and then we had a conversation and then we had a joke and then one day I just went, right, I've had enough of this. I'm going to contact him and I'm getting him on the show. And you said yes. Which I was quite surprised because I thought you, I thought, I thought you were thinking I'd kind of blackballed you <laughs> or something like that. I've quite liked a sort of a, a running joke in that you've had people from all over the world there, and there's me just down the road, <laughs> never, never made it on, and I, I really like that as a running joke. 
Well, we can see how we go, because if this episode's terrible, then we don't put it out and we just let the kind of the running joke kind of um <laughs> kinda continue. Um what we do is we like to find out a little bit about the history of people. Sometimes in relation to the hobby, sometimes not. Because sometimes not having anything to do with board games it can sometimes be a bit more interesting um, that way. But um, in terms of yourself, I mean, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about your you can, your, your background to kind of, be, to kind of begin with? Ugh, I'm not 100% sure anybody's going to want to hear that. I've often, I've often said that it's a good job that I'll never be famous because my biography would be some tedious reading. There's absolutely nothing interesting ever happens to me. That's good. Next question. <laughs> Honestly, I'm doing you a favour by not going through my life history. It's just a, a series of I I lived here and I stared at a computer for ninety percent of the time. Then I lived here and stared at a slightly different computer for ninety percent of the time. Were you um, yeah. were you a bit of a computer nerd when you grew up then? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't even realise that Scotland had an outside until I was like fourteen years old. <laughs> What were you? What did you start off with? Were you a console person? Were you a Spectrum person, Commodore oh, spe- person? Spectrum, then Commodore, and then Amiga. Really? Yeah. Um, forty-eight K Spectrum. Amiga's the, the best computer that ever existed. Really? I thought, could, I thought you could just use one every day. Nowadays, that's what I do. Just love the Amiga. Have you still got an Amiga? No, I don't. Unfortunately, I have lots of books about it, but. I don't actually have room for it anymore. Have you thought about have you thought about getting one when you up sticks? <laughs> Are you not allowed pretty, to get one? Pretty much constantly. Oh well, I mean, just for for anybody who isn't aware already, so uh, Mrs. Meeple and I are moving to Sweden quite soon, yes. and we have absolutely no idea what the accommodation is going to be like. We might very well be like in a, in a hut out in out in the wilderness. They might keep us up in Lapland or something. I have no idea what the actual arrangements are. So yeah. we're being very, very conservative about what we're bringing with us because we've just no idea if any of it's going to fit. So whether an Amiga is on the on the cars depends on just how much room we actually get because the housing market in Gothenburg is just unbelievably difficult to crack into. Why is that? Is it is there a lot of rental properties out there, or is it just difficult to kind of like buy? buy something. I'm not 100% sure what's behind it. There's Because of Sweden, there's a lot of things that are sort of run by the state, and I mm. think that the uh, the rental situation is not run by the state, but it's heavily influenced by the state. Yeah. And you've got things like, you know, waiting lists, and you've got to be on a waiting list for a certain amount of time before you develop enough points to get right. like a particular kind of property. Mm-hmm. And luckily, because it's a university uh, we're moving to, they'll arrange all the difficult stuff. But I have no idea how somebody who's moving to Gothenburg is supposed to find anywhere to live. It's just, <laughs> it seems impossible. Why don't you just get, get a really big van or a really big car? Do they not have Volvos in Sweden? They do. They're famous for their Volvos. Well, just get, get a really big Volvo. Oh, yeah. you get a really, really big one of those big 4x4 Volvos, which looks like a top of a Volvo has been yeah. stuck on the top of a monster truck. And you just stay there. And if anybody messes with you, you just drive over your car, their car <laughs> with your monster truck because Volvos are fairly... They're fairly yeah. kind of bulletproof, aren't they? I mean, when That's it comes... True. 
when it kind of comes when it kind of comes down to it. Um, Amiga game wise, I mean, were you what kind of games do you remember? I mean, one of the games I remember. There's a couple of games I remember for the Amiga. One of them was um, Lemmings. Lemmings. Yes. Yes. Um, which I think kind of took took the world by storm, and um, I think the other one was um, Gods. I remember God, anything, yeah. anything by the Bitmap Brothers, yes. Speedball, Speedball Two, um, anything along those times, and a lot Zero of them. Two. Yes, with its and fantastic you, soundtrack. Oh, it was just amazing, and you had to use like um, keyboard controls because they hadn't really got as far as doing joysticks with multiple button maps. It's not like nowadays where you've got like. 18 face buttons and two two joysticks. I mean, you'd have like a joystick would had four directions and it had like two two kind of fire buttons on it. And they both did know. exactly the same thing. Just, <laughs> which one's more comfortable? They did, and sometimes you had to press down and fire or left yeah, and fire to get into this. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, what drove you into academia? Oh, a lack of other options if I'm honest. I mean... Basically, when I left the university, uh, I was talking basically as a way of staving off real life. I was talking about maybe doing like a PhD or such. And mm-hmm. during the time I was waiting for something like that to appear, uh, the university that I graduated from, which was the University of Aberté, uh, they they offered they they advertised for some teaching assistant positions. And I thought, well, I'm not doing anything at the moment. I mean, I'm, I have no idea how to teach, and I'm terrified about standing up and talking in front of people, but. Maybe yeah. that's the ideal job for me. So I went for it, and I got it, surprisingly. I was okay at it, and from that point on, I've just proceeded being okay at the job to the point that, you know, this is where I am now. You've strived, for, strived for mediocre, yeah, and it's I mean, pretty much served you well. As long as I'm not the worst person in any given department. <laughs> you know, if, if there's somebody who would get fired before me, it's fine. <laughs> I strive to do, do enough so that, you know, when the conversations are the serious conversations where everybody's solemn <laughs> and you can tell it's going to be a difficult time because they get the extra special biscuits in for people to have a cup of tea afterwards. You just make sure that you're doing... <laughs> you just be, it's the old thing. It's like uh, if the lion's chasing us, I just need to make sure yes, I don't exactly have to outrun the lion. <laughs> I just need to outrun you. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. So what you was just the aim that you're not the worst and it's fine. It's what was it? through my entire what, career so far. What was it you did at university? Uh, software engineering. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. You're right, about the, you're right about the dull part, I mean. Yeah, oh, honestly, I'm absolutely doing everybody a favour not recounting my life history. Even I listen to it and think, that's some boring <laughs> nonsense. Well, we can, as I say, we can see how it goes, and we can always cut it. You know, we can always, <laughs> can always cut it out. But then I'd be worried it would just be the intro tune, yeah. And then it would just be the outro bit, and then folk would go, "What happened?" And it's like, um, uh, time, basically. You know, time flies when you're having fun. That's how kind of good it was. But anyway, I'm joking aside. No, I mean, just in case people say, "Oh, you know, you've read his tweets. You know what he's like." <laughs> all, all we could really sample was the intro and the outro. So. <laughs> just the ultra edited version and then we could have the director's cut version um, and then we'll have the ultra extreme, it'll be like Hostel part 2, the ultra, the ultra extreme kind of visceral cut well I um, guess it depends on what the conversation is I suppose <laughs> um, 
how did you, I mean, was it at university that you first kind of started experimenting with cardboard or did that come kind of later? Well, I mean, I played like board games when I was younger, like, you know, Hero Quest mm-hmm. and Space Crusade and those kind of things. Yeah. And then I kind of, I mean, I basically fell out of playing anything that was physical because it was a case of, oh, right, okay, I mean, I've played board games. I've done that now. So mm-hmm. I don't need to worry about it anymore. I, there's nothing new happening there. And it was only really maybe five or so years ago that I thought, eh, I've been watching this tabletop thing a bit and it seems like the games are quite interesting these days, so I'm going to buy one. Mm-hmm. And I'd been kind of feeling bored with video games because, you know, Call of Duty 50, Grand Theft Auto 96, you know, it's just yeah. it's the same game again and again and again. And they're increasingly professional and well done, but they're not very innovative or interesting anymore. And I'd been thinking, is this is this the end of video games as a creative medium? Have we got to the point where we're just seeing the same stuff again and again and again because it's successful? Where's all the innovation in gaming? And it turned out, well, it's all in board games. That's that's where a lot of the innovation has been going. And I was just absolutely blown away with the first few games I bought and played, thinking, I had no idea that board games were like this anymore. Because if you remember Hero Quest, it was still roll and move. You know, you roll a dice, you move around. That's still what I thought board games were. I, yeah, I, I, what, there's a big, there's actually a, a considerable difference between, say, Hero Quest and Space Crusade. You know, oh, yeah, having, yeah, yeah. having played, having played both of them kind of recently, well, recently, I say kind of like last year, I've actually still got, I think I've still actually got Advanced Hero Quest and Advanced Space Crusade, which was kind of like taking the training wheels off and it was kind of being yeah. eased very gently in the Games Workshop. Which was fine. Which was fine, you know. It was it was a nice time. It was a good good time. Uh, good times were had by by all at the time. I mean, it's interesting. Was, I think as well if you're if you're in the UK, you know, Games Workshop is such a part of the high street landscape. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that there was a mainstream gaming shop just at the time when nobody was really considering it, and you could go in there and buy games and play games. It's it's still kind of weird to me that you know Games Workshop is such a big presence even now. I think it's managed to cleverly place itself in the disposable income bracket. As in you've got two you've got the two sides of it. You've got the you've got the young kids and you know, my son's he's totally into um Warhammer at the moment. I mean it's all he kinda it's kinda hit hit him quite hard. So he's he's into that and he's also into Dungeons and Dragons in in a big way as well, but to him it is just a case of getting his pocket money, <clears throat> and then um, getting his pocket money and picking up whatever extra model he wants to do, and then on the other side there's the guys like you and me, who are have got jobs in that position where we've got a bit of disposable income, so going out and spending sixty seventy quid treating ourselves, you know every couple of months isn't such a bad thing to do. And I think Games Workshop have, they've had their lull. I don't think there's, you know, I think they lost their way maybe a little bit. Like I think a lot of the, a lot of places will say they did kind of, you know, very early kind of 2000s. Um, But I think they're back with, 
they're back stronger than ever. And they, they, they're the, you know, they're the retail. And if you look at it, if you think about the, the kind of the, at the same time, um, places like Game Station have come, have come and gone, you know, good old, good old Game Station. Game's almost been to the edges, edging back again, even places like HMV. So the fact that Games Workshop just continues to be the gift that keeps giving, even though it hasn't seemed to have expanded into other, Tabletop is pretty phenomenal. I mean, it's also interesting as well that even, uh, I mean, even the dark days where you and I probably remember that if you wanted to go buy like a Dungeons and Dragons manual, it was roughly the same thing as going to try and like buy a bag of heroin. You know, you had, yes. you had to go down a dark alleyway into a shop and talk to a guy in a shadowy room, and he'd sort of show you the stuff in the back, and you'd come away with like an advanced Dungeons and Dragons module. You know, it was. I mean, we remember what those things were like. And yet Games Workshop were always, you know, they were very visible. They were very, you know, they weren't hidden away in little dark alleyways. They were always prominent in a way that I don't think is true in a lot of other places. I think um, they've always managed to have staff in there who are genuinely interested in the product. You know, if you're st- yeah, I've been in, everybody's probably been in that situation if you've visited a games workshop where you stand, you're having a conversation with one of the assistants and you're both nerding out over the, over the same thing at the same time. And it's not <clears throat> the person that's speaking to you. They're getting excited because you're getting excited because they know how good the product is. This isn't somebody that's had three weeks of training on a sales pitch and how to close people. This is some guy who, when the shop when the shop closes for the day, they'll be picking up their own copy of the game, getting their ten percent discount or whatever, and kind of disappearing and playing it themselves. Which I think is, I think you know, it's one of these things that uh, has, has kind of kind of did it, kind of did it well. So. In terms of board games, what was the kind of the first ones that you owned? Do you still remember? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, I think they were just to begin with. It was sort of the standard fare, like ticket to ride, pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think maybe the most complicated one that we had was. Actually, I don't even know. I'm looking at my board game shelves and thinking I can't even remember what order these came. I don't even remember buying half of them. It's just you buy these things that are funk. You just you wake mm-hmm. up one day just covered in cardboard and just go, oh, oh what happened? <laughs> oh, yeah, night on the town sort of thing. I think probably the most complicated one I got to begin with was Galaxy Trucker, which was, you know, real-time building a spaceship kind of thing. Yeah. And, I mean, it's it's not particularly complicated now that I've got a bit more experience, but at the time it was just so different to what most board games were. You know, build a spaceship and hope it survives a bit longer than than everybody else's. That's a, an odd premise for one of your first board games, but yeah, it was great. Especially if the rule book wasn't like, you know, the back of the box or the inside of the inlay cover or two sides of kind of like, um, kind of like A4. You know, you're looking at something that kind of like had about 15, kind of like 15 different pages. Um, did you have, did, I mean, were you and your partner, were they, did, did the kind of the bug grow between you then? In terms of, you know, the, how much you're playing together and stuff. I mean, definitely we, we played pretty much everything together. And we still do pretty much play everything together. But mm. the bug, I think, easily hit me harder. Yeah. Because, 
I just have one of those kind of personalities that yeah. you get into something and you think, well, now I need everything. You know, I've, I've enjoyed these one or two things. Therefore, I have to have everything that's part of this. And a, a lot of the, the Meeple Like Us stuff basically came about because I looked at these shelves and thought, I need to do something to make me feel like this is an adult thing I'm doing. That, you know, I'm not just regressing into a childhood here. You know, it has to feel as if there's something worthwhile happening. And that's not something I think everybody has to do. But certainly for me, it was just a case of I'm not doing anything useful with this stuff. But I could be because I don't see anybody doing anything accessibility related. And maybe that's something worth investigating just for a you know, few weeks. That was the was, plan. It was a few weeks. Was that off the back of your job I mean did the accessibility idea did you continue just doing the lecturing and were you doing the lecturing kind of like in your field or were you getting involved in the accessibility side from a job job point of view as well the job I had at the time uh, was mostly it was mostly in Aberdeen it was mostly Robert Gordon University and I'm a lecturer in digital media there Mm -hmm. and my PhD before that was on accessible computing but primarily Uh, accessible computing for older adults in an aging workplace. So it wasn't games related at all. But when I was doing the digital media stuff, and I took over like the games, well, mostly a, a chunk of the games theme at Robert Gordon University, and it was a case of, can I bring these things together? Can I arrange my professional life so that the stuff I'm interested in personally is in some way useful for the work I do? Yeah. And that's where the accessibility in board game stuff came about because it seemed, well, there's an opportunity. I mean, I'm interested in accessibility in games. That's something I publish on every so often. And as I say, nobody seems to be looking all that much at board games. So there's a little project. I'll do it for a few weeks. I'll write a paper on it and then I'll never think about it again. Nobody will bother reading anything I do and that'll just yeah. be academia business as usual. Mm-hmm. But it, didn't, it didn't turn out that way. What? How many different games when you're select going through the selection process to decide on your first piece? Did you go through a big selection process? Did you, did you pick ten and then say, right, I'm going to whittle this down to five, and then we'll have competitions, and you know, we'll see, we'll see which one I'm going to decide. Or did you have a very kind of set parameter to say, okay, well, let's start with something crystal clear that everybody's going to understand and then just write about it and see how it turns out. Well, occasionally I'm asked, you know, what is the method behind the coverage of games on Meeple Like Us? And the honest answer is there, there isn't one. <laughs> it's just, what mm. have I played recently? And I'll, I'll talk about that. And it was exactly the same when I started the site because I honestly didn't believe anybody was going to read anything that I wrote. I was, it was just a way of putting down some notes Mm -hmm. ahead of them being worked into uh, an academic paper. And so I did, the very first game I did was Suburbia, because Suburbia was the first game I played where I thought, you know what, I really want to write something about this. This is a game that's interesting enough that I want to write something about. And it was also really interesting from an accessibility perspective, because I had all these different little uh, effects that worked across the game and across different player boards, and it was just a nice starting place for it but there was there was absolutely nothing systemic about it it was just there's a game i played i need to start writing somewhere so that's the one i'm going to talk about and that's essentially the 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 meeple like us coverage philosophy you know 
what is there I can talk about? That's the one I'm going to talk about. But what what made you def- what made you dis- decide and define the various factors you were going to cover? Well, that was basically through an evolution of some. I mean, it started off with a slightly different format. So, visually accessible was all one thing. Color blindness wasn't mm. considered independently. Uh, cognitive accessibility was considered just one big chunk of things. I don't think we talked about the socioeconomic uh, aspects at all, and probably didn't talk about the emotional aspects. And it was just a case of starting off writing this and then realizing, oh, hang on, there's oh, there's something interesting I can talk about here. A lot of it just derives from familiarity with uh, with the accessibility literature because one of the things about a PhD is you have to read a lot of yeah. academic yeah. papers. And academic papers are unbelievably boring at the best of times. But, uh, but you have mm-hmm. to read an awful lot of them. So I had built up a, pr- a pretty good understanding of all the different accessibility issues. And because my work was mostly with older adults, what you tend to find is that older adults have accessibility issues across every different category. So, you know, you, you don't get some uh, an older adult who has just vision impairment. You get older adults who have sort of visual impairment with a little bit of memory problems and such. So it tends to be quite wide-ranging, uh, the accessibility issues. So a lot of the stuff I'd researched and addressed in my PhD turned out to be relevant for the stuff I was doing for people like us. And it just gradually got workshopped into, into the form it is now, which still isn't perfect, but you know, better than it was to begin with. Are you um, are you surprised it's not covered as an issue? Because I know that um, in the video game industry, accessibility is still there's certain areas that are covered. I mean, I know that um, color blindness. When people talk about accessibility, kind of color blindness kind of comes up. I do know that even as little as kind of like eight months ago, there was a big. Um, there was a big debate regarding accessibility in video games and um, people were just basically saying, look, it'd be helpful if I had a control scheme that automatically jumped for me or automatically fulfilled my health for me when it got to a certain area because I just can't react in time. And it led to a decry of kind of gamers saying, you're ruining everything, as usual. Um, but in terms of board games, I've not seen... Well, in fact, the only I've not I'm not I've probably not looked enough, but you're the main person that I'm aware that actually goes into great depth to kind of cover the accessibility. Is it is it because it requires there's a lot of reading in your articles, and is it because um, generally a lot of board game reviews are fast, quirky, funny? And it's very rarely that they get into kind of like a serious kind of tone or maybe even an intellectual kind of sphere, I guess. Well, I, mean, I think a lot of it is just people aren't really confident in talking about it. And that's not an unreasonable position to take up. I mean, I'm constantly aware of the fact that I am a relatively abled person talking about accessibility in, in games. And I don't have, for most of these issues, any kind of embodied experience about what it is to have a particular disability. So the focus I take with this is it's not saying this game is suitable for people with this disability or this game is suitable for people with that disability. It's a case of saying this is what the game asks you to do. 
So it asks you to do this kind of math. It asks you to do uh, this kind of visual processing. It requires you to deal with these kind of gameplay events. So people can make their own decisions whether or not it's appropriate for them. But mm-hmm. that's that's an approach that I've built over the past few years just because, again, a sort of sensitivity that comes from awareness of the, the various kind of accessibility issues. There are plenty of people out there who would say that able people should not be talking about accessibility and i do sympathize with that but i think the approach that we take is is something that addresses that particular issue while also still being hopefully useful to people as a, as a guide but certainly as far as um other places and sites and things talking about it there are a few there's a, a blog and a podcast called sightless fun which is uh, a guy uh Erte in greece who does um mm-hmm. A number of analyses, visual accessibility analysis of games, and he is actually blind. Mm-hmm. And there's like the Playability Podcast, which is discussions with game designers about how they approach accessibility. And there's various other blogs and things that do talk about it incidentally. But not mm-hmm. an awful lot of people are talking about it. And I think a lot of it is just if you're uncomfortable about how you talk about this, it's easier just not to talk about it. Yeah, I think um, the way I read your articles, there's they're very um they're very matter of fact. And it is like it's um the way I look at it is the difference between you rolling into a garage and telling the mechanic what you think is wrong with the car and then they giving them a kind of a I guess an offhand kind of diagnosis of what they think it could be, as opposed to you rolling up and saying, Right, I need my MOT done and then them coming back and saying, Right, well, okay, on this point, on this point, on this point you were fine, you've got a caution on this, you've got a warning on this. And that's very, very much how the the articles um come across. And what's interesting is that um you're not afraid of taking kind of industry darlings and uh, you know where I'm going with this and uh, (laughs) you're not afraid of taking industry darlings and it's not a case of ripping them but just basically saying yeah this is fine for what it is but from an accessibility point of view it really could be doing things an awful lot kind of differently an awful lot better obviously one of the most um, recent ones was Mech versus Minions, which um, I I read through it. I read through it again, and there's nothing that comes up and says you don't like the game, which is interesting. It's kind of like it's very factual, and you're saying, well, apart from the fact we say, well, here's a review, and we just kind of think it kind of misses out but you're kind of very very factual in the analysis which I think is kind of is kind of useful um, I can see the reason why people would say well how are you meant to say you know if you've got a copy of a game and you're looking through it how can you talk about the socio-economic accessibility of an £80 game if you're sitting with a copy of an £80 game at your table and I get that and I understand that but also at the same time I think um the work that you're doing is quite important from a point of view that a lot of designers are having, are looking at taking these things on board and especially if they want to make games as accessible as possible some of the points that you constantly bring up are um yeah you know it's very very important other other publishers that you've noticed that seem to do things well are there the good guys out there that you seem to continually seem to be 
in your mind kind of making an effort? Yeah, it's it's hard to say because, I mean, the big thing about these teardowns, and as you say, they, they often do take fairly pointed swings at games that are sort of universally lauded. Mm. But I'm kind of in a position where it's it's quite easy for me to do that because I don't think of myself as board game media. You know, I'm a, I'm an academic who has a research blog, so I'm not looking to make a living from mm-hmm. board games. Uh, talking about board games, I don't particularly need to have the connections or the friendships. These are, <coughs> I ideally they are dispassionate analyses of like a set of criteria, and when it comes to the teardowns themselves, sometimes a designer has done everything they feasibly possibly could do but yeah. the game is still inaccessible. And there shouldn't be any judgment in the teardown saying, well, that's terrible. Because yeah. if you've done everything you can do, then well done. You know, Even if the game isn't particularly accessible, well done you. And I think Scythe was a good example of that because I had an awful lot of good stuff to say about it, but I still ended up not recommending it in most of the categories that we talk about because you know, even if it's as done as well as it can, sometimes games just ask too much of people in various different kinds of categories. Mm-hmm. So when when it's a case of our publishers doing things well, sometimes, yeah, but it doesn't necessarily show up in the, the recommendation grades. What I tend to find is that smaller publishers tend to be more interested in these issues than larger publishers. So one thing I've, I've done on a regular basis is just send around emails to a whole pile of companies saying, hey, I'm doing this thing here. Are you interested in working with me? And for most, I get either nothing back or just a polite, no, we're not interested. Like, for example, Hasbro could not care less about the work I was doing. Mm-hmm. They, they literally said, we are just not interested in working on this with you. And that's fine. That's, you know, mm, Hasbro, yeah. maybe, they, maybe they have people already doing that. But a lot of smaller companies, because they appreciate there is a commercial advantage to having an accessible game, are in the current climate where it's very, very difficult and the the margins are so, so slim for a lot of these games, they realize that, well, if I do this small thing here, that means that maybe 10,000 more people can play the game. They won't necessarily want to, or they won't necessarily even know about it, but that's increased the audience for a game. So because that's a, a nice way of increasing the size of the audience without doing a huge amount of work because most of the stuff that we talk about isn't all that difficult to do. It's things like choose different colors or you know, yeah. if, you, if you're using these colors here, put an icon with it. None of it tends to be particularly expensive. I'm not saying anything like, yeah, you need to, pro- you need to provide a fully braille version of this game which will be 10 times the size of the box. You know, it's, they tend to be relatively small, simple things for people to do. And because smaller publishers are looking at this and saying, oh, that's that's something that I could do, yeah. what I think is probably likely to happen is that the, the current wave of smaller publishers on their way to hopefully becoming bigger publishers are going to be the ones that drive this, this forward. And it's kind of what we saw with video game industry because board games, despite being a much older hobby than video games, are about 10 years behind where video games yes. are as far as accessibility goes. But yeah. This is how it was back then as well. As you say, you know, you, you say, oh, it would be good to have remappable uh, control schemes. And people say, oh, you're destroying the developer intent of the game. But mm-hmm. very few developers actively think to themselves, yes, my game has inaccessibility as a core design feature. Very few of them think yeah. that way. It's just they don't realize that 
the features that they not put in there are actually accessibility features. The remappable key controls and controllers are so important from an accessibility perspective that's the difference between somebody being able to play and not being able to play. They just didn't realize that. And as yeah. the awareness builds, you know, accessibility becomes something that doesn't just become a nice to have. At the moment in video games, if a game is inaccessible, it will result in an outcry. And I think that's fantastic because it shows that you know the, the topic has become sufficiently high profile that developers have to actually do something about it. They can't just sweep it aside. Yeah, I think the other thing with board games as well is that um, while we've got um, kind of the industry darling kind of Kickstarters as well, um, a lot of these guys were kind of, it's not part of the plan because when a game blows up the way that it does, um, the, you know, it could be from the first design, it could be from the second design. And I think sometimes, you know, people are just ec- ecstatic to kind of get their game kind of out there and to get it kind of developed. And then, you know, the accessibility. I know there's games that they become, you know, very accessible just by their nature, just because of how the mechanics play and how the, how the game is it, itself. I mean, um, and at the same time, I think, you know, some people are kind of like, oh, I've done, <laughs> I've just hit 125 grand in my, you know, 125 grand in my Kickstarter. And it's like, oh, is now the good time to look at accessibility? Because I know that'll help people kind of thing. And sometimes there's a little bit of a kind of a backpedaling. Um, <clears throat> is there any games that you've been surprised with recently that you've kind of went, yeah, they've, they've kind of, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but they've actually made a game that's really, really accessible to as many people as possible. I There is a, a phrase in accessible research, and it's basically accidentally accessible. You know, And it's the idea that most games that tend to be accessible and most products that tend to be accessible just is, as you say, a natural consequence of the way they're put together. Yes. Generally speaking, I don't see a lot of games that have huge innovations as far as their accessibility goes. And there are companies who explicitly uh, try and put some accessibility features in them. One one of my favourite companies for this is Hub Games, who have made so many efforts in their games to have accessibility built in as a core deliverable. Uh And, you know, so like games like, for example, Blank, which is about as simple a game as you can have. It's sort of like a Uno Legacy is probably the closest way to think about it. But what that the when the cards and you draw them out and you you once you win a game you get to write a little uh, effect on a card. Mm-hmm. But because you get to write the effects, you get to choose how accessible that game actually is. And that's not something that's going to scale to every game, but it is something that you know it's obvious that they've taken into account when they built their their accessible product. But when you look at sort of where the real accessibility features are almost always they are basic usability improvements and I think that's something that people often don't realise when they talk about accessibility that good accessibility is indistinguishable from good usability you know it makes things better for everybody a good colour scheme isn't just good for people with colour blindness it's good for everybody because it makes it easier for everybody to pick out colour information you know well contrasted cards are not just for people with uh, visual impairments we all benefit from that. You know, if you're in a room that has poor lighting, for example, the colour scheme is going to be massively important in the same way as for somebody with colour blindness. So most of the features 
tend to be just people have thought, well, that would be good for everybody, rather than specifically a case of this would be good for people with accessibility. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this probably this doesn't sound connected at all, but when I went and seen um, when we went and seen Infinity War, and I went and take took the kids, and for whatever reason. Um, I, I took them during the day on a Saturday and the showing that I picked, um, or was it the Sunday? It was one of those days. It was a day beginning with an S. But I was just trying to get tickets and we accidentally picked the closed caption cinema version. And um, <coughs> so we sat down. Cinema was empty apart from maybe about 10 or 15 people. And this was only like the third or fourth day after the thing had been released. And then the film starts up and the subtitles and everything kind of appear. And first of all, I'm like, oh, this is so embarrassing. I've taken my kids along to the wrong film. But then what I found when I was watching it, the added benefit was I never missed any single joke during that entire film, any kind of line, any kind of clever quip, because um, I'll admit my hearing isn't always the best as it could be. Um, but... The, the the outcome of being able to watch a subtitled film was the fact that I was able to catch on the fact that Thor was calling Rocket Rabbit all the way through the first time. You know, I caught on that rather than kind of catching at the end kind of thing. And that was, that to me kind of went, well, if it, accessibility to me just, you know, it just makes it kind of, I mean, it's not a comparison, but at the same time, it's where something that has been made accessible has benefited kind of somebody that wasn't expecting it to be kind of, uh, so every single game I play, I play with subtitles on, with the closed captioning on, because I'm often, for example, watching a movie or watching something on YouTube, because I don't really yes. care all that much about the audio in the game. And yeah. if a game doesn't have good closed captioning, that is a game that is inaccessible for me because of the way I choose to play the games. My yes. favourite example of this is, uh, I think it was Far Cry 3. And I was playing through it, having a fantastic time, because you know it's a great game of killing tigers and skinning them for their you know so you can make a, a new pair of boots can't or whatever. Say that, Michael. Michael, you can't say that. You're you're liberating a land. It's not about going around killing very rare well, but delicious delicious animals. In every single case. And one of the things that happened was I was sort of wandering around quite happily and then it comes up the closed caption, Lion Roars and that's all it tells you. That, Great, so what am I supposed to do with this info? Just run straight ahead. That's clearly all I can do. Whereas if I just said yeah. Lion Roars nearby behind you, that's all it would yes. have took for me to go, right, now I know what I'm supposed to do. So yes. when these things are inaccessible, it does impact on, on me as well. And it impacts, impacts on a lot of people who do that because more people use these kind of features than people tend to think. And for a lot of cases, when we're talking about accessibility features that are make things better for everybody we usually just forget that they're accessibility features. Like, for example, audiobooks were once called books on tape for the blind. Yes, they were. That's what they were for. You know, they were for people who weren't able to read the books themselves. And we all use audiobooks nowadays because audiobooks are fantastic. The uh, predictive text on your phone was once there to deal with people with physical impairments who couldn't type out full words. But now yes. we all use predictive text. So, you know, all these kind of things, once upon a time, were accessibility aids, but they were so useful to everybody that they just became good design. And we're at the stage with board games that we haven't quite realised what good design actually is, as far as that particular topic goes. But, you know, 
my hope is that eventually we'll get there. Was it, um, you launched the Patreon and, um, I mean, you get a steady kind of decent kind of amount of people that are supporting you like that. Was that, um, was that kind of surprising when that happened, when you launched it? Were you surprised about the number of people who decided to go ahead and you'd kind of back you and support your work? Was that kind of a bit, kind of life affirming to say, well, actually, I'm doing the right thing here? Uh, I have a complicated relationship with Patreon. I mean, it is abs- you're absolutely right that there are objectively a huge number of people supporting some work that they don't have to support purely because they see it as being something useful for the community. And that's in- in- incredibly heartening. But on the other hand, Patreon has created this really, I think, perverse incentive in the work that I do, and that sometimes I think to myself, I kind, kind of wish I hadn't, I kind of wish I hadn't done that, because it suddenly made it suddenly quantified the work in a way that previously wasn't the case. And I've said a number of times that you know I see the Patreon not necessarily as an income source because it's not. I mean, it, it basically pays the, the site's expenses and. It buys games so that I don't have to ask for review copies and I don't feel awkward about tearing into a game, which is often the case for the teardowns. So it, it doesn't actually make any money, but it's also kind of a propaganda tool that I can point yeah. to publishers and say, look, people take this site seriously, and they take site, this site seriously to the point that they will pay actual money to keep it running. Mm-hmm. But the point at which it actually accomplishes that goal, I, I don't know what that is. And Patreon income goes up and it goes down on like a regular basis. And objectively, it's not something that, like, intellectually it doesn't bother me, but on an emotional level, it's still a case of going, oh, it's going down. Is that, have I peaked? Is, yes. it, is that the end? You know, is basically, is that the site on a downward slide from this point onwards? And it's a really weird kind of thing in that it's fantastic that people do support it, but it's, it's also something it adds. And I've written quite quite freely about this a number of times. It adds a lot of emotional weight to something that shouldn't actually have any emotional weight. It's it's just hard to to break that away from the success of the site. And you know, yeah. you, you look at things like you know, oh, there's some random Kickstarter and it's funded to four million in fifteen seconds, and you think, ah, okay, so it's it's not that there isn't any money in this hobby. It's just that it doesn't go towards people creating this kind of stuff because Patreon across the board for board game media is not well is not well supported in comparison to other kinds of uh, other kinds of crowdsourcing. I always joke. I always joke that um, basically uh, that if one person decided to quit Patreon within board game media, it would cause everybody to crash down because everybody else is supporting everybody else. <laughs> You know, at a, cer- at a certain level, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like uh, marketing yourself on Twitter. You know, you're only marketing yourself to other board game media people. You know, it's, it, it's exactly. you never get a new audience on Twitter. It's, it's the same audience every single time. I'd like to think that actually I'm quite good at the marketing on Twitter. If you didn't mind, Dr. Herod. You've had an, you an incredibly successful viral tweet that I keep seeing coming my way again and again and again. I... I, 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 what I like is I enjoy people that kind of take it and claim it as themselves um, and are still posting it out there and people are still pointing out and going, that that person's stolen. And it's like, yeah, I know. It's like, it's, there's no point. I, I, I can't help them if they can't create their own content kind of thing. But I get the Patreon thing. I, I, I do have, again, I've kind of got the, not the love-hate 
Patreon kind of thing going on, but there'll, there'll be a point in the month where I'll panic and I'll be like, I've not sent bloody anything to these people this month and I better, I better say something. Thank you again, you know, for giving me money. And then what happens is that ultimately you send an email to somebody and they say, oh, that reminds me, I better cancel. <laughs> Just wondering where that, wondering where that, wondering where that two dollars was going. It was going to that flipping wizard boy over there. A bit <laughs> sort that out. Click, click, click. Wizard boy, is that a confession? <laughs> no, okay. it's not. It was just a glitch down the, down the uh, the Skype dump. Um, the other thing that, the other thing that you you're keen on, um, in the hobby is kind of growing the. I guess kind of writing kind of guidelines and stuff like that on where the hobby is going. You know, I have opinion. I have opinions on this. I, I've voiced these opinions kind of like Bez. She forced me into a corner and in one, one episode forced me to, to voice the opinions. But, um, in terms of the state of the union, do you, th- you know, do you think that, um, well, you obviously do because you wrote stuff on it. Do you yeah, think we're all too? Anything. Do you think we're all? Too, do you think we're all too close? Do you think we're in danger of trying to emulate the video game industry, kind of too much and too closely, that we're maybe already too kind of far too close together, for there to be a separation of media and creators, kind of thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's awkward because what we do have is an almost completely hobbyist media space. And the incentives and the rewards there are not aligned with what board game journalism slash criticism needs. Because you get a lot of the rewards from affirmation. You know, people saying good things about the work that you've done. And you, you know, having conversations with people you admire and them responding to you and all these different kinds of things. It's a very social reward system. But I do worry that, as you say, people are a bit too close and a bit too cosy in this, in that if you are doing a review or a piece of critique, you have to have at least some distance from the people you are reviewing and critiquing. Even if even if you think to yourself, I'm not influenced by those factors, it's very difficult for that to actually be true. And I do think that the, the level of cosiness in board game media is something that is causing something of an issue. And sometimes it's a case of people saying, well, I just don't review games if I don't like them. Like, I don't, I won't write a negative review of something. And okay, and I can kind of see why that's the case when there's so many games to review anyway. But still, if there's no negativity, if there's no actual genuine negative critique of stuff that's putting out there, people don't really know how to calibrate the kind of reviews that they're seeing. I think negative reviews are important because they give people a way to say, oh, okay, so that's what that's what a bad game looks like to you. And they can use that to interpret what your good reviews actually say. I remember there being a way back machine. I remember there being a review, and I think it was maybe Mean Machines at the time, and they reviewed a game called Road Raider, on the SNES, oh no, on the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and they must have given it about a one or a two out of ten. And the pure visceral enjoyment of them ripping this game 
to absolute shreds that the point was they actually said at the end, you know what I mean? He says, I'm going to provide them with a quote anyway and say this is a thoroughly fun fun gaming experience. And then for whatever reason, the guys behind Road Raider or Road Fighter or whatever it was called, I can't remember, um, they, they had... They had obviously bought advertising space in Mean Machines. <laughs> and lo and behold, God bless, um, I think it was maybe Jazz Rignall who was editing it at the time. Um, he put, he, they made sure that the advert for this game was right next to the review. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you flipped over the, it was a double page, I think it was even maybe a double page review, I'll need to dig it out. But when you flipped over the page, it was an advert for this road fighter game. And there, there in kind of like the, their put on the advert was this quote from this game saying, what is a turnabout, of, you know, a highway to hell of fun kind of thing or whatever. It was absolutely, it was absolutely kind of fantastic. I kind of agree, I must admit, I kind of agree with you in, certain aspects to the point that um, I generally don't try to write up previews now for people that I know or people that we've had on the podcast. And that's why I I kind of brought Steve in as a writer on the show because Steve doesn't... Because if you've got a game going and we have a really, really good chat and a good conversation, there's a chance that then there'll be off mic conversations for the for, for the next couple of weeks kind of after that and then if you then turn around and say oh will you preview the game then I you know if I say okay well I can get somebody else to preview the game I mean for instance we got sent the we got sent the Artemis project recently um, to have a look for Mark Spector at um, Grand Gamers Guild and that's with Steve because I, you know, Mark Spector's been on the show. Um, he's been on the show before. He's actually, I think he's, 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 he's actually pointed me in the direction of somebody else who's guested on the show. He's thinking of coming back on the show again. So for me to write a, a critical piece about a game, there's that, there's that kind of potential relationship conflict there. However, I can hand it to Steve, and if Steve then goes ahead and says, oh, look, I didn't like that, I didn't like that, I, I've got kind of plausible deniability kind well, of thing. The issue there, you've, you, you've picked up on what I think is probably the most nuanced and subtle part of this issue, and people miss out on it. They think, oh, I would write a negative review of that game if I thought it was worth a negative review. Okay, Fair enough. If people believe that, you know, mm. they, they know their own mind better than I know their mind. But at the back of your mind, in these kind of circumstances, a case of what does this mean for my long term relationship with this person? So I didn't like this game. Are they going to send me the next game? And if they're not going to send me the next game because of this, well, maybe it's not that I'm going to fabricate my views, but in this part here where I could go one way or the other, maybe I'm going to go positive rather than negative. This part here where I have, eh, I would probably let that slide if it was something else, but I'm going to modify that criticism just a little bit. Now, mm. None of it is dishonest, but it's a case of even subconsciously massaging the overall message because at the back of your mind, it's not a case of uh, I'm worried about not getting this review copy. It's a case of well, what happens to this relationship as time goes by? And one of the things I've often said with uh, 
the, the previewing in particular is, okay, so let's say you did a negative preview of something. And let's say these are paid previews, which are becoming incredibly common across the entirety of this hobby. Okay, what is the likelihood that you're going to write a negative review of something that is actually contributing genuinely to your salary in this hobby? You know, yeah. if you write a, a negative preview of something or you film a negative preview, what's that say to the next person who comes and tries to get a preview of you? They're going to say, actually, I'm going to go somewhere where I don't have to worry about this actually being authentic. And even when people say, well, I'm not going to cover negative, I'm not going to cover products I don't like, you're still guaranteeing a certain amount of approval in the, the previews that you're actually doing. Because otherwise, you can't get the future business. And that's why I worry about more than just people, you know, when people say, oh, I'm, the idea that a review copy can sway coverage is nonsense. It's not the review copy, it's the relationship implied by that review copy. And I think people have to be very, very careful with these kind of things. I mean, you mentioned the, uh, the was it Mega Machines? Madness Machines? Mean Machines, yeah, machine, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you're a site like Rock, Paper, Shotgun or Eurogamer nowadays, you have an advertising department that is completely isolated from the review department. You know, yes. They book the reviews. They have no idea what games they're going to go on, and the review team don't have any idea who's actually paying for advertising. So you've got this yeah. firewall between it where you don't need to actually worry. And even if you worry worried about it, there's nothing you can do about it. But very, very few board game sites are in that kind of position. I mean, you've, you've set up a firewall uh, that sounds fantastic as a way of dealing with that. But, you know, it's it's just me and occasionally Pauline who is available to do coverage for the site. And yeah. we tend to play these games together. So... Yeah, I mean, I mean, if somebody if somebody approached us and said, um, <clears throat> you know, if somebody approached us and said, could you do a Kickstarter preview? Um, and if they said, oh look, we'll pay you a hundred dollars if you make make a video just kind of doing a run through, and you know, um, you may be underpricing yourself there. I know, I'm cheap and dirty, and uh, you know, I'm yours for a hundred dollars. It turns out, well, but no, get my wallet. and also. <laughs> Not yours, because you're you're walking away. You're leaving us to go somewhere else. But um, no, in all seriousness, no, I would I pressure that person to say it's an advert. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I have... And I've said this, I've said this, you know, I've said this before, and I've said it a couple of times, and it seems to be... You and I have both said this again and again and again, and it's it's one of these things that... Right, so here's where we start to get a little bit spicy for the podcast. There are a group of people who have such a vested interest in this particular topic that they are trying to make it about something it isn't actually about. Like, for example, compensation for work done. That's not a problem. Nobody has a problem with that, as long as you mark that work as being promotional or advertising. That's all people are asking. You know, whether people actually are happy with actually consuming those kind of things, that's different. But all we're really looking for, and most people who have spoken to about this, all we're looking for is a bit of honesty that you took money for this, therefore it's not actually critique, it's not review, it's advertising. So just do that. I, that's, I don't see an issue with that. I have no issue with that. I, I no, have no issue with somebody that says, look, I've done this, it's like fantastic, you've done a video, kind of thing. Um, and I think it, it kind of removes a grey a grey area because then you can have people that say um, I'm just doing a pre- this preview is based around the components and what you're getting you know 
it depends. It's it's money, it's declaration, and as I say, it's such a great. As I say, I went into length with this with Bez when we had a discussion about it, and I, I wrote a big, huge thing about it. You know about funding stuff and things like that as well. Um, and I know some people don't like to talk about it because it can have a detrimental effect on their income. And I know other people don't want to talk about it because it provides ammunition to certain nastier people out there as well. But if we don't start to have the conversation about it now, then when do we have the conversation about it? Do you know what I mean? When, when do we start talking about it, really? But I mean, those nastier people aren't waiting for evidence. They're not interested in this as a topic of ethics. You know, that's an excuse for them to be the kind of people that they are. Hmm. You know, and there was recently, as you will remember, a particular scandal relating to plagiarism. And there were a number of people who were saying, oh, we shouldn't be talking about this, we shouldn't be drawing any attention to this because people are just waiting to start, you know, bored gamer game. But you'll notice that didn't happen. And it didn't happen because that's not actually true. That's not what, people aren't motivated by the ethical aspects of it. They're they're just my lot to swear in this podcast. <laughs> they're, yes. nas- they're nasty people who are looking for reasons to be nasty, and if they can find those reasons, they'll weaverse them into into their own agenda. But that's not the reason that they actually do things. So I am very very critical of the argument that having this discussion enables people to be arseholes, essentially. Because I don't believe that's the case. Arseholes are going to be arseholes regardless. This topic, though, is essentially a case of it's either we clear house, we clean up what we're doing, or there's going to be eventually a group of people who come in and pretend to do it for us. And I think it's much healthier if we have these conversations and we're the ones who clean up what it is we're actually doing, that we are above reproach in these kind of things. Yeah, and it's not um, it's not about taking a holier than thou kind of attitude. It's just about folks saying, right, this is a situation, and if we all follow by that, because we're in the unfortunate situation is back in the nineties, you couldn't just start up a magazine and cover console. Well, you could, and there was a lot of fanzines that would have done it, but they would have never had access to. They would have never really had access to free copies, they would have never had any money and stuff like that, whereas in the board game media, I mean as I say, I always joke with people about this, but there's a board game reviewers and media group and you'll see somebody coming on and saying, oh hi, I'm launching my game you know, I'm launching my game Bug Hunter Extreme and I'm looking for coverage and you will see literally 60 comments from people talking about, oh we'll cover it for you and I'm just wondering where, who are these people? And then you turn out, well, they're board game reviewers, they're board game media because the, the kind of the access point to get in is pretty much nothing. You know, if you've got a tip, you know, you can, you can have a, if you get hosting, you can get hosting for goodness knows whatever, stick a WordPress site up, you're golden, get yourself a phone. Get some videos on there on YouTube. You're fine. Get yourself on Instagram. Take yourself some, you know, f- get yourself some photographs and, you know, but, and I see it all the time, but also I see people grow and change and make the effort and, and that's pretty cool because the only, the only reason that people move away from board game media is because they move away from board game media. I don't think people stop for any other reason kind of 
you know, apart from that, um, you know, family pressures and stuff like that, you know, there will be people that will continue to grow, continue to do reviews. But I guess it's the low level of entry that there isn't kind of what magazine do you work for? What website do you kind of work for kind of thing? It's more of a case of, well, I do this as my day job. And then at night time, I'm spending two hours filming a video or writing up a review or stuff like that. So that makes it kind of kind of different anyway. Well, I mean, it makes it very precarious for one thing because you don't have editorial protection. You know, you don't have an editor who's there to make sure that a, you're following good journalistic practice or good critical practice. And also when somebody comes knocking your door saying you gave a terrible review and this is going to be a problem for you, they don't have an editor who's going to say, yeah, you talk to me about that. You don't talk to them about that yeah. and is there to protect them you're basically everybody is by themselves and because of that and because that we don't have really an awful lot of people in the board game media who are actually trained journalists or trained ethicists or anything and I'm, I'm neither of those things but because we don't have a lot of people we don't really have a tradition of good ethical practice because we don't really know how that's actually done and the more that we sort of experiment with these kind of things, what you tend to see is that people are doing things that on the face of it aren't really a problem. And it's not a problem because there's just not all that much money and all that much influence that people have at the moment. Yeah. But this is a hobby that is growing and it's growing incredibly quickly. What happens when the somebody who has set their price for this is what my opinion costs at $300 and then suddenly a big company comes along and says, $300 for a positive review. Well, yeah, we're going to get 20 of those because that's yes. peanuts. That's peanuts to a big company. And if we've set, if we can't actually do the right and the appropriate thing when the sums are so low, how are we actually going to be able to resist when the sums actually become larger? And that's, that's the real worry about it. It's not, there's no major massive problem at the moment because no, it's, there it's, isn't. it's board games, you know, the stakes are ridiculously low, but that's not always going to be the case. Yeah, no, or, absolutely. You know, maybe it always won't be the case, you never know. I mean, as I say, it might stay like this. There is a chance, there's a definite chance that there's going to be, you know, a maximum of 10 to 20 people who are going to be making this as a living and then everybody else is going to be kind of doing what they do just now, and we'll just have to we'll just have to see. It's an interesting topic. It's a diverse topic. It's a highly emotional topic as well. You know, people have some very um, direct, diverse kind of opinions on I this have, kind of going forward. You know, I have lost a lot of friends <laughs> on over this particular topic. Yeah, it has been, as you say, massively divisive. Yeah, and as a, and but it's worthwhile discussing, you know, and it is, and 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 if I don't know what, um, I don't know, it has to be discussed. I think that's the thing that we have to have a discussion. You know, there has to be chats about it, and 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 that has to that has to involve everybody who has some kind of influence within the media. And what I mean by is who has some kind of influence. I mean everybody. Everybody has a right to pitch in. Everybody has a right to have a discussion. Everybody has a right to to kind of um, state their concerns about having 
the discussion in the first place. That's perfectly fine. But by sitting there and uh, kind of hoping that we're covering ourselves in blankets and that nobody's going to find us in the middle of the living room when we're playing hide and seek, that's just... I, I don't I don't get that at the moment. You know, there's a protection, you know, there's a bit of protection. You can have a bit of protectionist going on, but it'll only see you kind of so far. I mean, we're kind of getting away with some pretty shady stuff at the moment. And I, I say we because, you know, I've made mistakes as well. I've, I've done things I've looked at and thought, oh, I really, really shouldn't have done that. But we've made these kind of mistakes, but we're getting away with them because nobody's really paying all that much attention at the moment. But that is a very short-term solution because more and more people are paying attention and they are being legitimately critical. And the worst thing about if you, if we are going to have it some point in the future, and I don't necessarily think this is actually going to happen because it's, yeah, again, the stakes are too low for it. But if we do have like a board gamer game, the absolute worst thing that we can do is give them actual genuine reason that they can point to and say, look, this is the reason why we're doing this. You know, if they want to make up reasons, that's that's the ideal scenario because it's easy to debunk them. But you can't have them pointing and saying, oh, look, you're giving positive reviews in exchange for money and that actually being true. That's the worst yeah. possible scenario for for if this actually comes about. We shall see. Anyway, you'll be in Sweden, so, you know, you'll be fine. Well, you I mean, know, I'll... I'll, I'll still be, I'm you know, have, online. <laughs> I mean, I take it, you We're know, when you move, you're still going to be, well, you're still going to be about, you're still going to be doing your accessibility and everything like that. I take it that's a given. Right. Well, that's, that's fine then. The new position is basically a senior lecturer for interaction design for games. And a big part of what I talked about in the interview was the Meeple like Us stuff. So, you know, it's, it's not, it's not part of my job now, but it's, Close enough that I can probably start bringing some funding streams together and hopefully actually remove the need for crowdfunding or, you know, that kind of thing entirely. That's pretty cool. Hopefully. That's cool. If, um, if people are interested in reading what you have to say and kind of, kind of delving right in there, like you're, a, like, you're, like you're a ball pit of accessibility and they're just diving in and swinging their arms about and everything like that. Where do you exist on the internet webs? So I could be found at uh, meeplelikeus.co.uk and also meeplelikeus.co.uk because nobody seems to know what the name of the site is. So I had to buy two domains just to capture all the people directing people to the wrong site. Uh, I'm also on Twitter, Maple Like Us, and Facebook, Maple Like Us. And I think that's pretty much everywhere. Where'd you get the name from? I honestly... I, yeah, I, I keep thinking I keep thinking Spies Like Us. <laughs> I honestly just wrote like a pile of board game-related words into a thing, and then just randomly went over combinations of things. I'm not very good at naming anything. That's That's just... That's a crap story. You need to come up with a better one. I told you my biography would be unbelievably tedious. I just have no, I have no words. I have no words. I have, I have been generally. It came to me in a dream. I w- I like uh, I'd, I'd taken some peyote and went out into the Scottish desert, and spirits chanted the name to me, and I just registered the domain on the spot with four G. 
I prefer the writing down words yeah. and picking one, to be honest. It sounds better. Yeah. Um, th- thank you very, very much for coming on. Oh, you're very um, welcome. You know, um, for everybody who's out there, if you're still listening, <laughs> to, um, you know, you can find us in all different kind of places, worn out faces, um, all over the internet. Just search for We Are Not Wizards and you'll find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And we've got our website, which is we are not wizards.com. And we've got our blog, which is we are not wizards.blogspot.com. It's a very good blog. I've been Thank enjoying it. Thank you very much. And we've also an Instagram as well. And if you want to listen to us, you can catch us across all the different podcast catchers. Some of them use the word pod. Some use the word cast. Some of them use neither. Like Player FM or Spreaker or Stitcher or Spotify. There's a whole f- list of them. Are you, you know. on the MySpace, son? Son, <laughs> no. are you on the MySpace? <laughs> are you on the MySpace? <laughs> Aye. Absolutely. On the garage band. Did you all say um, you on that, son? <laughs> that, why are you trying to do a Scottish accent when you've got a Scottish accent? It's supposed to be an old man Scottish accent. I've got one of those as well, unfortunately. You're you're a slightly old man anyway. You yes. don't have to do an accent. You just have to be you speaking I, I, to also. say... <laughs> 10,000 bottles of milk on your doorstep tells me you are dead. Um... <laughs> Anyway, and uh, if you like what you've listened to, tell somebody else. And if you don't like what you've listened to, then go on to Apple Podcasts and tell us all about it by dropping us a rating or a review. If you are going to be dropping us a rating or a review, I'd remind you um, not to give us 20 billion stars because Apple's completely changed all the things it does about its podcasts because it makes us big-headed. But don't give us minus 373 degrees Kelvin because... um, That'll make us cry. Give us something in the middle, like a five, because it's average. And we're just a little bit average. But the person who's not been average tonight, who needs to work on his origin story and how he came up with his name, is the rather wonderful, rather fantastic Dr. Michael Heron. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm glad. You'll see what you think when you hear the edit. Um, and everyone's going to go, what have you edited? What have you edited? Oh, we've edited a ton of this. Oh, some some dark stuff in the middle. <laughs> really dark stuff in the middle. That, that went to some really unpleasant just, places. It, it did, it did, it did, it did. Um, I'm, I'm not sure half of that was legal, by the way. I, I think possibly we'd end up in jail. Well, you'd end up in jail because yeah, of how I edited it. Um, <laughs> There's only two more things to do. The first thing is to remember that we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Michael? Uh, no. Yes. Fantastic. No. 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 I might be. And the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from Michael. Say goodbye, Michael. Goodbye, Michael. And it's a goodbye from me. Remember, stay safe. Roll sixes. Make something awful. Until the next time, goodbye. Bye. A wizard is never late. Thank you.
is he early? He arrives precisely when he means to. 